to start out, I want to hear about Kuro. That was like your first startup, right? Tell me about that experience. Yeah, so, so Kuro Labs uh, came out of a research project at the AMP Lab at Berkeley, um, where I was doing my postdoc uh, with Jan Stoika. Um, the, the lab itself, just as a bit of background, uh, turned into something of a startup factory. Um, I, I don't know to what extent that was by design, um, but out of that lab came companies like Databricks, Determined AI, Alexio, Anyscale, and several more actually. Um, and my project there was around mobile battery diagnosis. So at the time, and I think still today, you can just go and look at how much battery is being used by each of your different apps. But it, what it doesn't tell you is why. So is that normal? You know, if I want it to use less, is there something I can do? Or is that just what the way the app is, et cetera? And so we realized that we could give much more nuanced and actionable diagnoses if we gathered data from a large number of devices. So we could say something like, you know, the Twitter app is using a lot of battery on your phone, but it's just the particular version of Android that you're running. So if you upgrade either the app or Android, then you won't have this problem and you'll get like three hours of battery life back. And that's a real example of a bug that we found. But the only way you could do that is by gathering data from a large number of devices. And so we basically made this app that would collect, you know, anonymized sparse instrumentation that would enable us to then surface automatically these diagnoses. So we were pretty excited about this. It was a time when battery life was, I think, less, um, less good than it is now. So people cared a lot more about getting, squeezing that extra 45 minutes or whatever out of their phone so they could make it through the day. And so I was still thinking about this like a grad student. So I was like, well, I got to write a paper. So I need people to use this thing. So I'm going to, you know, email my friends, <laughs> like go around the lab, be like, hey, you, you know, install it for me. I need data. Um, but at the time, I had a friend, a couple of friends who worked at TechCrunch. Uh, and one of them in particular um, heard about what I was working on and asked me to, to come in and show it to him. Um, and he ended up writing an article, which got a ton of attention on TechCrunch. And in the first 24 hours after the article went live, we had more than 100,000 people using the app, which we, we had never thought about scalability or supporting 100,000 users or anything like that. Uh, and so it was something of an overnight sensation in that regard. And so we, we said, well, I, you know, maybe we can just sell this thing and like make a, make a business out of it. And so I reached out to uh, my friend Jacob, who um, I had known from the Stanford PhD program. And uh, we ended up starting a company, Kuro Labs, around it. Uh, for a time, we were focused on just sort of monetizing the app itself. So we released it on iOS and Android. And, uh, but both of our backgrounds were, were not in mobile. So uh, my background was in sort of supercomputers and data centers. And the same was largely true of Jacob, more on the data center side. And we, we realized like, we don't really wanna make our fortunes 70 cents at a time. And more importantly, uh, you know, a few good customers who have data centers where you could save you know, $10 million on cooling every month. That's a much bigger power optimization or energy optimization opportunity than saving someone a little bit of battery life. And so we started to reach out to companies that either had data centers or had data from data centers. Uh, and that led us to talk with Splunk, who ended up scooping us up. And that was how I ended up there. Was it the same sort of mod? Like, so as you started working on that, was it the same sort of models or infrastructure or anything? Like, was there a real technical reuse or was it more like expertise reuse? Uh, are you talking about the, the work at Kuro? 
Yeah, like as you were switching from basically, because it, it sounds like you're sort of pivoting oh, yeah, yeah. from mobile to, to server side, right? Basically. Well, we started exploring the pivot, but we never kind of got to it. Essentially, oh, as soon never, as we, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, as I soon see. as we started talking with these companies, they shifted the gotcha. script on us and were basically like, yeah, you could, gotcha. you know, get this data and then go pivot as a company, or gotcha. we could just scoop you up yeah. right in house. So, so, so basically, so as you're doing early customer development for that, Splunk sort of like Aikido threw you into like an acquisition deal or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I, I remember we walked out of a meeting yeah. with them one time and I turned to Jacob and I was like, did that feel like an interview? <laughs> like, like that was a very strange conversation. Yeah, that's a very common maneuver, a very common corporate development maneuver. And it's like, usually it's a sign of a maturing tech company that's thinking strategically, that's able to like have, you know, low, basically lower down staff sort of think that way. And I've seen this many times with my companies as well. And, and obviously many other friends companies too. So that, I mean, it's kind of impressive that Splunk was thinking that way at that point. Right. Cause you were there. What was the year when you guys joined them? Like they weren't public yet. Right. Were they? They were public at that point. Whoa, this would, oh, this would have, have been, okay. you know, 2014 or 2015 maybe. Oh, I thought this had been earlier for some reason. Okay. Yeah, so they, was... they were definitely public by this point um, and had uh, really strong people in Corp Dev. So I think at the time it was uh, Sender, yeah. Sala Kumar, and John McQueen. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, they were, they were doing a lot of both large and small at that point in their life. And in fact, once right. Jacob and I joined as part of seeding the machine learning team, uh, we almost immediately bought another small company up in uh, Vancouver which kind of kickstarted that ML engineering team. I was just, yeah, I was just going to ask, was it more ML or more infrastructure at Splunk? And it sounds like it was ML. You guys basically started the ML team. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting for as far as like ML versus infrastructure that Splunk grew up as an on-prem company. Right. And even when Splunk Cloud was introduced, which happened just a little bit before I got there, um, the bulk of the infrastructural design of Splunk was kind of calcified. So the work of bringing machine learning capabilities to the platform was about sort of mapping the tools and processes for doing ML, which at the time was basically scikit-learn onto that infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost neither an infrastructure problem nor an ML problem. It's like, how do you make those two work together if you're yeah. handed both uh, you know, fully formed and need to make them work together? And that was really the the task. And then of course, sort of building a UI on top of it so that people could actually use it um, inside the platform. So, okay, gotcha. That, that was gonna be a, a, a question I wanted to get at was like, to what extent you guys were working on ML for Splunk internal as the client versus what sense were you in like creating AI, like ML tooling on the platform for your customers of Splunk? Yeah, it was mostly the latter and a little bit of the, the former. Latter. Okay. Yeah. So the the main sort of flagship offering from that group was the, the Splunk machine learning toolkit, uh, which basically yeah. let you do sort of classical machine learning on top of your Splunk data. Gotcha. And that had pretty good uptake, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, I drove a lot of uh, of pipeline. I think by the time I left, um, the pipeline associated with that was something like half a billion dollars. Hell um, yeah! Which was like nice. pretty good. Um, yeah. And yeah, we had lots of people using it. I think it was also just important for Splunk to be playing in that space. Like people yep. wanted to be doing ML on that yep. kind of log data totally. and didn't really have easy ways to do it. 
And so it was an important, I think, part of the capability suite. And now, like, you know, if you look at Splunk over the last, you know, five or 10 years, even, you know, the marketing material kind of shifted from like never talking about ML or AI at all before we got there to now it being a sort of front and center for most of the products that they offer when you think about like insider threat detection or anything else. As it should be over log data, because, you know, the days of like a sysadmin going in and having a peek at the logs is like, you know, that just doesn't work at modern scale as a way, you know, that's sort of like a very late stage debug activity after you've like long since identified something with an ML model and then done some processing on it and then served it up for them to look at, right? Like you're not trying to tail a log anymore, right? And look at what's going yeah. on. Um, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, more than that too, right? Like the, the logs contain information about things that are no longer constrained to like IT infrastructure. So, you know, you're going to have logs related to human activities, like who logged in where, and that's where all the security stuff came from. But pretty much everything now is is connected to the internet is generating logs that you could presumably aggregate. And I'm not trying to sell anyone Splunk here, but like the, the point being that actually almost everything you do leaves a kind of digital trace. And so there's all kinds of important questions you can answer by looking at that data. And so then it was, um, so then it was Slack. What were the ML problems like at Slack that were most interesting and impactful to you? Yeah. So, I mean, Slack, Slack was a fantastic company. I mean, they both were, um, I had a wonderful experience. I felt like it was a privilege working both places. Um, I, I actually, shortly after I joined Slack, I wrote a blog post kind of about the ML opportunity there. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was called something like a recipe for success with machine learning. Yeah. Um, Cause I really felt like they had all the ingredients for success. <laughs> like, uh, it, you know, they had the, lots of unstructured data. They have engaged users with like tight feedback as to whether features are working. They had sort of just enough data and infrastructure that it's not a huge additional lift to add on these machine learning capabilities, mm-hmm. a really smart team of people, excellent culture that's open to change and that sort of thing. And so it kind of had the pieces and I was like very excited going into it. Um, and I, I still think that was true. Um, but we faced a kind of chicken and egg cycle for getting the work funded. So like the, the team there was very smart and effective, but it was small. Mm. And they had to spend most of their time just keeping the existing ML infrastructure running. Right. And so trying to tackle anything new was, was challenging or getting funding for anything new was challenging. So we're always faced with this question of what is the highest leverage activity that we can undertake to drive features throughout the product? And you asked, I think, like, what are those features? <laughs> or like, how is ML used there? Um, the two sort of main categories of work are search and recommendations. Mm-hmm. So if you search for, you know, channels or people in Slack, for example, you'll see that some of the results are like, you know, have little sparklies that say things like similar topics discussed in this channel, et cetera. And so that's yeah. doing like a semantic search. Uh, if you join a new channel, it'll recommend other channels to join. And that's a, an example of a recommendation. And these are sprinkled throughout the product in sometimes subtle ways. Um, but it's uh, I think all of it reduces user friction in some sense or another. Yeah, that makes sense. To what extent did you get involved in any um, of like the search capabilities or was that just sort of like a different, like more straight up, like like keyword IR type approach? So it was, it was sort of keyword um, when I got there. Um, yeah. One of the big projects that we launched there, which actually sort of uh, led into the work that I'm doing now at Graft was 
bringing those sort of semantic search capabilities to the product by leveraging technologies like foundation models and embeddings. And that meant that now you didn't have to just do keyword search. You can also do this kind of semantic meaning-based search uh, over yep. that data. Um, and similarly, you know, sort of aggregate um, the representations of individual messages to be able to ask questions about people and channels and that sort of thing. So you were starting to actually ship some of that in prod before you left to do. Yeah, that's right. So, so all these features launched and actually part of the reason that, that I sort of, uh, you know, had the confidence to go start graft was that those features were really successful. So uh -huh. they were driving improvements to those key metrics yeah. that were much larger than what the sort of aggregate team that was responsible for moving those metrics were typically able to accomplish. Yeah. So, you know, instead of eking out one or two percentage points a year, it was like a two digit percentage jump in terms of the performance with that one feature. And this and is, like, oh, this technology is really impactful if you use it properly. And this and this this engagement metric is just like sort of a usage of, of search or what's the or, or dwell time on the site or something or what? What do you? Yeah, w without going into too much detail, because I'm not sure, you know, to what extent I'm I'm allowed to share, but. They right, had a notion right. of cert, of a search success rate. So how successful are the searches, yeah. which is some function yeah, yeah, of, yeah. you know, you do a search and you click on a result and then you don't come back. <laughs> That's like what a successful yeah, search looks like. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So it's like getting, getting what you want. They're getting what they want out of it more. Okay. So you, I think what's cool when founders go through a journey like you have in your career is that you've 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 done a startup, which you did a little bit of. You didn't really scale the crap out of it or anything, but you did a swing. And then you've had a couple of stops through some really some marquee tech companies. And so you've seen a lot of the sort of typical Silicon Valley playbook that's done right. You've seen some stuff done poorly. You've formulated some of your own opinions on management and so on based on what you've seen that you liked and didn't like and you come away as a much more mature leader, right? And so then you come and start Graft. What do you think is different about you as a founder now versus Kuro? Because I'm sure it's a lot. Yeah, certainly I'm a different person. Uh, you know, and Graft and Kuro are very different companies. Um, you know, as you said, Kuro uh, was sort of like the near, nearly the simplest possible manifestation of a company. Like yeah. we started with a functional product with existing users and latent demand, never raised outside capital, never hired any employees. And we did it at a time when there wasn't like a new global crisis every few weeks. And so mm -hmm. uh, that was like the easy mode. And uh, yeah, at Graft, we're sort of doing a much more classical venture-backed startup journey in the enterprise tech space. Yep. And I, I think Kuro, I, I learned several things while I was there. You know, One of them was the importance of having great co-founders. So, uh, you know, I could not imagine founding a company with someone who I don't admire and, and think is just an extraordinary person and who I like being around. <laughs> so it all, I'll see sometimes people will say things like, oh, you know, I'm a business person, so I'm just looking for a technical co-founder or whatever. But it's like, it's a much closer relationship than that, or at least I think it should be totally. at a successful company. Yeah. And so this idea that you're just like filling in slots, um, I, I just don't think about it that way anymore, even if I had a, maybe never thought about it before that way, but I certainly don't think about it that way now. Um, yeah. You know, it's I much think, more of a marriage, right? It's much more of like a marriage. Absolutely. It's like absolutely. pretty serious. Well, it's like a marriage, Including, you know. Yeah, well, they say like for, 
Yeah, well, and say for like for marriage, like one of the most common things people fight about is money. But when you're yeah. a co-founder, it's like you're in a marriage where the primary thing is money, <laughs> like it's right, business totally. first rather than love or something. Totally, totally, uh, totally. And, and I, I think certainly learned some things from Kuro in that respect, including that maybe, you know, B2C is probably not for me. Um, I think consumers are very fickle and that's maybe not my jam. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think I learned something at kind of every stage in my career um, to prepare me for what we're doing now at Graft. Yeah. Um, I could point it in my experiences at Splunk and talk about what I learned about go to market or technical product moats. I could talk about my time at Slack and what I learned about culture and, you know, the importance of, you know, moments of delight and product design and all of these different elements. I'm trying to take like the best of those experiences and bring those to what we're doing now at Graft. What about um, the shift from being more engineering focused to go to market focused, right? Because this is actually the first startup where you've really had, you, you've really gone deep now on go to market, right? Whereas you didn't get quite there with Kuro and like you've been in engineering leadership roles now. So that's that's a big shift, right? Going from where you've been to this, what, what's been hardest about uh, that and how have you kind of beefed up on the non-engineering stuff? Sure, I mean, certainly lots of reading listening, talking to smart people, uh, being methodical about identifying the areas for growth. Like if I come out of a call and I feel like, oh, there was this part of the conversation that I don't think I just nailed, I'll try to go and reflect on, you know, what should I have known or, or been able to say in that context that maybe would have been better and then go read up on that, that topic. You know, for example, there's a, a book about objections in, in sales motion. And it's like, okay, you know, it would have been great to be able to field those objections better. So let me go read up on that, for example. And I think those are all important things to do. Um, I've also found it really important to, to give myself the space and the grace to make mistakes as long as I learn from them. And that could be, that could be hard because uh, you know, it's fairly high stakes and high pressure. And so it can be difficult to say, it's all right to make mistakes and we're going to learn from them. That's the only way that I'm going to become, you know, strong and go to market as opposed to relatively new in it. Yeah. And, and the same is true of the CEO role. Um, you know, it's, it's unlike previous roles. <laughs> so there are th certainly things you can learn from being a, an IC or a manager. The CEO seat is just a very different kind of uh, seat. And there's not really a whole lot else that's exactly like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like in some way it's almost defined by that property. Like if there were a restricted purview or set of expertise that defined the role, then you would have a person to do that role. <laughs> like you, they would be, there would be a C-suite role for that. If it were a well enough defined function, the CEO role is almost like what everything sort of flows up into to, to be a catch-all of like, these decisions were not able to be made at the, you know, the other parts of the organization and that sort of thing. It's almost defined mm -hmm. by that negative space. And that's very hard to prepare for. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, what about the functions that you hadn't touched before, like finance, legal ops? We talked a little bit about like sales. Um, what's been your, what's been your process? Cause you, you have, I think all of us go through this that come from a technical background before um, or a product background that, you you kind of need to hire these leaders and get these functions right. You have to have, or you know, before you even have leaders, you're just probably managing an ops person or something. Um, 
how do you how do you do this chicken and egg and get yourself competent enough to not screw that up too badly? Uh, I, I leverage my network a lot. So find somebody who does that thing well, who I know already, and then I go and I talk to them and try to understand what they do to yeah. suss out a little bit of where, where I might be able to do some of that and where yeah. I definitely need help. Yeah. So, for example, my wife works in finance at Google. And so when it came time to figure out like what we needed as far as finance goes, I just talked to her. Yeah. Or when it came time to start looking at, at sales, because, you know, enterprise sales is part of the go to market motion for us. Um, you know, reached out to people who are in sales roles at companies I've worked for before. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, in our Slack workspace, uh, there's a VP of sales from, from Slack slash Salesforce. And I've been using this person as a resource for interviewing sales candidates, for bouncing ideas as far as like, here's yeah. how we're thinking about selling this thing. And yeah. I'm just kind of shameless about going to people who have the expertise in my network that I want and asking them questions and, yep. you know, eventually bringing in an expert once it's clear that there's a sufficient need for that ongoing activity in the organization yeah. to justify the headcount. Um, yeah. And I, I think, think that's that, worked pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's right. I think that's what I've done. And a lot of other smart CEOs that have done that are, you know, when they're first time CEOs and learning the ropes is like, you kind of realize that, like you said, that with the generalist sort of skill set that. There's this one general skill that gets you really far, which is basically identifying who are the people that are actually driving the results versus who are the people who are like full of shit and optimizing for like optics. I call it like mm -hmm. outcomes versus optics, right? Like if you can identify the outcomes people, then you can just come in humbly and be like, listen, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but you seem to. And like, here are the results I noticed that you're driving that are good. And like, I want that kind of stuff. And like, that gets you actually very far because it turns out most people are in the optics bucket. And if you're able to like sort of classify them out, you avoid a massive amount of brain damage along the way, right? A lot of the yeah. biggest problems in startups come from like, Startups have to have to be all outcomes people like we can't really afford any investment in these in these meetings slide deck people that are like look cool in a meeting, but they get fuck all done for results right like and there's a huge amount of those even even in like growth stage tech startups there's a ton of them have already crept in right but so it's like being able to be like no I see where where I see you for what you are I'm not listening to your advice. I'm going to listen to this woman's advice because I can see clearly like the results that she's delivering. And I think once you do that, you can kind of like start to sniff it out across like any function, even if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and then you just simply go to them and ask for help. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I think that's the best way of doing it. Like a lot of this stuff is going to take far too long. If you try to learn it on your own from first principles and read books about it and all this kind of stuff, like that's going to be of really limited value. Yeah. Um, when you look, you look at the depth that some of these functions have, right? Absolutely. And, and a lot of these, you know, for example, sales books on sales, uh -huh. uh, every product and every market and certainly every pairing of those two things are different yeah. enough that yeah. you could pick any one of these books, even the best of them, and yeah. there's like some fraction of it that's going to be useful for you. And the rest is totally meaningless and maybe even actively wrong. 
Yeah. And there's not really a great way to know a priori which of those are. It's no. like, here are some things that people have thought about sales before. Let's go and apply some of them and see whether they work. And then we'll go totally. and eventually land on our own sales model. And what a lot of people will then do is say, oh, maybe I've figured it out. I'll write a sales book <laughs> or something. And now there's right. another one on the market that's right. also mostly wrong for most people. It's, exactly. And it's I'm glad you're bringing this up because this gets into the next thing I wanted to talk about. So, yes. And the smartest CEOs for go to market are very crafty about getting down into the minutia of their own particular go to market and like the buying cycle and rollout cycle and so on that customers have. Right. And I think you're you're I love companies like yours because you're you're inspired by a use case that you saw at Slack and you said, wow, let me generalize this. So, like, as you saw the demand for it there and the success, how did that start to influence how you thought about go to market? Because obviously it must have and you must have started to think about the other people that would need this and how you would do this generally, how you would go to them. And like, did you look at other neighbor companies as inspiration? Because that's more important than a random general sales book is like, oh, here's a nearest neighbor. Like, what are they doing kind of stuff? So like, tell me about how that played out in the beginning. Yeah, so I think there, there were two elements to it. And I'll, I'll sort of repeat our graft tagline, which is that we're making the yeah. AI of the 1% accessible to the 99%. Because I think sort of baked into that is what you need to understand about the market forces that made me inspired to go start Graft and also a little bit about why this is a sensible go-to-market motion. Mm -hmm. So first talking about the 1%, you know, we were looking at companies like Meta and Google and Amazon, and we realized they were all kind of converging around the same stack of technologies and, and sort of tools for doing AI for more or less all of their AI use cases. And it was really successful for them. And so they were reinvesting additional profits back into those initiatives and building out that infrastructure more and more and more. And so the sort of gap between them and everyone else was widening. And the question was like, is there any way to get that technology into the hands of everyone else, like the 99%? And so the experience at Slack was us, us sort of testing out to what extent is that technology transferable outside these big AI companies? Like, do you have to be Facebook in order to use these technologies or can you take sort of the, the beating heart of that and somehow transfer it? And so the experiment at Slack, which was very successful, gave us the confidence to say, okay, if you had talent and infrastructure, then you can deploy these technologies elsewhere to great effect, but most organizations don't have the talent and the infrastructure. So the question for us was, could we build a product that removes those two barriers to entry? And if we can, then we can make this uh, technology available to everyone. And that of course is what we're, we're building. So let me just, I wanna make sure I unpack and understand in greater detail, like exactly what the product does. So there are, are, are companies then able to just effectively like rapidly train a model on some data for a particular task and you have like these different kind of canned models or like what let's go a level down in detail on this yeah so we've been coining the term modern ai to describe this new approach that all the top ai companies were converging around and one of the reasons that it's so different from classical machine learning is that you often the goal is not to train a model the goal is to solve a use case and very often you don't have to train a model to do that hmm. and in fact at slack 
talking just about semantic search and recommendations, like a dozen of these features, we didn't do any training at all. And so if you come from like a classical ML background, you're like, oh, I have a new use case. Let me train a model to solve it. Yeah. But actually, if you use things like pre-trained models, like these foundation models and right. embeddings, yeah. if your problem looks anything like semantic search or similarity search or recommendations, you might not have to train anything if one of these models is good enough as a starting point. Right. And if, even if you do have task-specific sort of uh, predictions that you want to make, you just need to provide labeled examples. You don't have to worry about any of the underlying ML machinery because yeah. those modern technologies will kind of handle all that for you. Yes. This is this is sometimes that part is sometimes called the data centric AI approach as opposed to the model centric or code centric approach. Yeah. Where like you want to make it work and you want to make it work better, focus on the data and the labels. Yeah. And Graft is an example of uh, of that sort of approach. Yeah. And so for a lot of companies, you know, the, if their use case is fairly common like wanting to you know, uh, do content moderation, for instance, or do semantic search or recommendations, often there's no model training involved whatsoever. And right. the basic workflow looks like this. You configure a bunch of data sources to point it wherever your data is, like cloud storage, SaaS yep. tools, public internet, social media, et cetera. You stitch related data together into these things we call entities. So examples of an entity might be like a product or a customer, but it could be anything you want. You're just pulling in all of the data that's relevant to that entity. And then you can enrich it with predicted properties like a toxicity score or a sentiment score or whatever you want. Again, anything mm -hmm. that you have examples of. Yep. And then you can query it in a bunch of ways. So there's a SQL interface, there are APIs throughout the product, et cetera. And the, the sort of reason that this workflow is so powerful is that you can map most common AI use cases to that exact workflow. So if I wanna do content moderation, I might build a post entity that includes the text and the images of that blog post. And then I might enrich it with a toxicity score or some other sort of content marker. Right. And set up an alert to tell me when some you know toxic content gets posted or whatever the sort of action you wanna take is right. for that content moderation. But you could say something similar if you wanted to be you know, tracking sentiment distribution of some topic over time on social media for making product decisions or something like yeah. that. And again, yeah. all of these kind of map into this workflow really neatly. Yeah. So I don't need to be building some new data pipeline or coming up with some new model whenever I have a right. new use case. Very often, everything is already wired up from the previous use case. And I'm just giving some new examples for this slightly you know, adjacent thing that I want to do. Right. And that's proven to just be an extremely powerful abstraction for yeah. top AI companies. And that's really what we're leaning into. So I think that, you know, thanks for unpacking that. That's all very true. And I, I wonder about the particular examples of, of these kind of, uh, these kind of aggregates, like you gave the example of a toxicity or a um, sentiment score, um, where you're, uh, you're, you're in this new world of AI. And yet at the same time, you're kind of doing like hand rolled feature engineering there. And there needs to be some way of kind of debugging that, right? Am I getting at the right information with this toxicity score or sentiment score? So how do you see people doing that in this? new uh, paradigm, if you want to call it that. Yeah, so I would say less feature engineering and more uh, labeling. So, you know, the, the, the various enrichments that are baked into Graft are just starting points. 
So you can use that as a jumping off point and then go into one of these labeling flows to customize it to your particular nuanced sense of what that actually means for your business or your use case. So you can grab a toxicity score and say, actually, I'm interested in a particular type of toxic content. So I'll label examples slightly differently than, than what it provided. And that's fine. But it really is about providing this mapping between the data or the entities and some concept that's important for your use case. Yeah. And that's nice because it shifts the burden closer to the subject matter experts. So yeah. asking somebody like, hey, we're trying to identify you know, potential customer champions. I want you to give me you know, 12 examples of customer champions and 12 examples of you know, right. maybe customers that churned or who hate the product or whatever, so that I can now predict some champion score for all of my other customers. Yeah. And I can do that just by labeling examples. And this is something you could give to like an account exec or something like that and say, look, mm. you've, <laughs> you've been around the block, you've had good and bad experiences with customers. Yeah. You know, you know, you tell us which ones you'd like to see more of, and, and yeah, that sort of thing. The, the the interesting thing, though, that I've found, and th this is why why I want to follow the rabbit hole a little bit, is um, there's a little bit of a fallacy there, which is that you know sometimes the subject matter experts are not so expert as we'd love to think in the machine learning world, right? And like, yeah. you actually get surprisingly noisy labels, and I've seen this on like. For example, um, we did a startup that was uh, anti-money laundering and, you know, it was all kind of like all the, this was the era of like the bird and laser stuff and everything, right? When we were, everyone was first shifting to that. And so you're able to do like multi-language models, which is awesome instead of having to do a suite of models for every language independently. And so we've got this all wired up and we think we're hot shit and everything. And then we're right, and then we're working with the the AML analysts, and you know the labels are basically rubbish, and we're we're like looking through them ourselves, and we're like, oh shit, like this is gonna this is becoming a real problem now, where actually to induce the labels on this correctly is sort of this meta problem where like it's very complicated to do, and like their opinions on it are oftentimes like kind of bad compared to what an ML engineer would do to label the same data. That's like actually thinking a lot more precisely about what an algorithm should do. And so we would end up finding that we're catching a lot of really bad labels and we were able to label them better um, by taking basically the ML team and training an internal team of analysts. So we ended up sort of inverting it where it's like, no, you're actually not really a very good subject matter expert. We're going to train these like sort of mutant, like cyborg, you know, kind of people that like use these special tools that help them induce better labels on the data that are more like right by the definition that we have. And we end up getting, you know, massively better results. So I'm, it's kind of weird, right? Because you want to push it to the subject matter experts, but then it just kind of comes back around to us in a lot of cases. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think you're right that, uh, you know, human judgment labels are less good than concrete ground truth. And if you have a mechanism for getting it a ground truth, like, you know, this customer churned or it didn't. And also, it's, and also it's just like many, in many fields, the people that are supposed to be doing the subject matter experts that you want to get labels from 
we, you know, the dirty secret is like they're poorly trained and they just are, are providing noisy labels and they're doing like a half-assed job and whatnot. And like, I don't care if you're talking about from medicine to any money laundering to in some trivial task, like I've seen this being pretty consistent. Like, I think it's like a pretty big problem. And that's why a lot of stuff works well when you have, you know, monstrously large amount of data, because then, you know, it kind of shakes out in the noise. But for many like problems, you don't have that, especially like in enterprise or whatever, right? If you're just working off some internal data. Yeah, and then... I, I think it's, it's totally valid. You know, there is still value even in noisy labels for yeah. getting started. Yep. And sometimes that's yep. enough to start making some predictions and then testing them out against reality so that yeah. you can build up a data set of ground truth. But yeah. I agree with you. It's sort of like eyewitness testimony in court. Like yeah. in some cases it's the best we have, but it's really bad. <laughs> like yeah. that, that's something kind of similar here where I don't know who, you know, the customer champions for this customer are going to be, but if somebody is going to go and give me some set of labels to start out with, yeah. we can at least start to test it against reality. Right. And this is by the way, you know, where attention from an organization ought to be paid anyway. Like if they care about identifying customer champions, they should be investing in figuring out how to identify those champions in the first place. That seems like almost part and parcel of the use case. Yes. I'm wondering like around this, do you see behavior change in these organizations when you're like, you sort of get something bootstrapped and then you start using it? Do they, do they change their behavior to sort of try to optimize for it better, to label things better, to like change their workflows fundamentally now that they're using tools like this? Like it must drive some kind of change. Like what, what typical stuff you do? Sure. I mean, this varies a lot depending on the use case. Like we've been talking a lot about sort of customer analytics, um, but there are a lot of others where you're consuming data about the external world where there's not really any sort of feedback loop really between your decisions and the data that you're doing that analysis on. Mm. So I think there, there are only a subset of situations where it feeds back into the behavior and there it just varies depending on how impactful the tool is. Mm. Like if they're finding it really useful, it'll either reinforce existing behaviors because they're like, hey, this, is, this tool is really helpful. Whatever I'm doing is feeding it the data that it needs to drive that positive change. So I'm gonna keep doing that. Or they say, hey, I get better results from this tool when I change my behavior in the following ways. And then that actually does adjust behavior. If the tool is not very good or not very useful, then it usually doesn't drive any change at all. Right, of course, yeah. Um, okay, so let's shift gears a little bit from this technical stuff and get into like this, the CEO school of hard knocks. So like what, what has been, do you think, sort of your biggest like humbling moment or fail so far in this company and, and what did you uh, learn from it? So, so I'll start with the, the humbling moment. Um, I, I think every time anyone has joined the company or anytime a customer has signed on to, to pay for the product, uh, those moments are always very humbling for me. Um, and so, you know, this has happened at least 16 times as far as like onboarding new employees, for instance. Um, and, you know, they're just, the people on the team are incredible and they have, uh, you know, illustrious careers and remarkable accomplishments and they're amazing people. And they have hung their professional hat on this company that, you know, was just a sort of twinkle in my eye a couple of years ago. 
And, and that's very humbling and, and, and gratifying. And so I'm just super grateful to, to all of them and to all of our customers for you know, putting their company's money and their reputation to some extent um, on the line um, because they believe in what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so definitely that. Um, I, I think as far as mistakes go, mostly I view mistakes as learning opportunities. And so I try not to think of it as a mistake so much as an experiment with a negative result where, where we learn something and now yeah. we're better yeah. off for it. So it yeah. still provides value to the organization most totally. of the time. Totally. Um, that, that said, you know, if you, if you pressed me on it, I, I think, uh, you know, early in the sort of sales motion, when I first started going out and actually trying to get customers to, to agree to, to buy the thing, um, I used to be very hesitant to sell a product that didn't satisfy all of a customer's requirements. And I, and I say that out, now, out loud now, and it feels pretty dumb. Like, I, you know, I've talked to customers, they'll have several use cases, and even the partial product that we had at that time could tackle some of them. Yeah. But I would pause the conversation because there were some that we couldn't handle. And I would say, oh, you know, let me get back to you as soon as we can, we can handle this. Right. And often, you know, because I didn't think about this at the time, but often I would come back even just a few months later and that person's left the company or the priorities right. shifted or whatever. And that opportunity is gone. And what yeah, I should so... have prioritized was getting it into their hands, getting that feedback. And, yeah. and if it turns out that that use case that we didn't quite support is, is a blocker for continued use, then so we, we lose that customer. But in the meantime, totally. we could have learned a lot and made some money. Yeah. And, and so that was, I think, uh, just my own naivete um, at this sort of early stage of bringing this thing to market. So that lesson yeah. learned. And it's just sort of like, I think in the end, um, I was talking to uh, Jay Kreps, the the Confluent founder, CEO, he was one, actually my first one of these CEO podcast interviews. And um, it's, you know, as a software vendor, you've got to really internalize that. Like you just need to give them enough value that it's worth it for them to buy your stuff and plug it in alongside the other things they need to do. Right. And in the end of the day, they're always going to have to do a bunch of this stuff internally as well. Right. And so like, you just kind of have to realize I need to be worth going through the procurement work and like, you know, integration and setup work. Uh, and if, as long as I'm worth that value wise, they should use my stuff basically. Right. And like, you don't, that's like a, kind of a much lower bar, right. Than to try to make yourself like a, a total solution for some giant thing. Right. It's like, it's like, if you're better off using my stuff than not. Let's do a deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you go into it and you're like, we're going to be a hundred X product and we're going to be amazing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you just need to be good enough <laughs> to be slightly better than whatever else. That's, like just be worth right. it. Just be barely it's, worth it. And it's good. I enough. think too many of us psych ourselves out with this 10 X, hundred X, thousand X, whatever the fuck X it is. Like it's the, like, where's that come from? Right? Like, where's that's just a weird mantra that's made up by VCs or whatever. Like there's no, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you solve a real problem for somebody enough that it's like worth the inertia to act. Right? Like that's it. Yeah. I, and I, cer I certainly agree with, you know, wanting to be 10 or a hundred X better than anything on the market as a kind of vision that you're going to be yeah. working towards over many years. Totally. 
But the crossover point for where customers will begin to, to pay for the thing and be really excited about it is way, way before that. As you yeah. said, just barely worth their time. That's good enough. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of, it's sort of like if you think about like the iPhone as an example, right? The iPhone is one of the most amazing blockbuster products of all time by far. Mm-hmm. And it just basically shit on any other option in the market, like dramatically at the time when it came out. But they didn't just come out with the iPhone. They had a whole series of stuff that they did before that, both with Macs and with iPods that gradually left up to them being able to ship an iPhone, right? And And, and some of those early ones were not super successful. Like the very first iPods were not blockbuster immediate hits at all. And but they like, had to go through those motions. Totally. Yeah. And the time the time came when they were like better than the these other, you know, the Zune and all these other cheap MP3 players. And then eventually the time did come when they were 10x, 100x, 1000x, whatever, better than these other music players. And then you can do the iPhone. But it's like, I think, you know, people need to sort of like not just look at Steve Jobs on the stage pitching the iPhone and think like that's where I need to be to launch something awesome because that's just going to psych you out and that's just not realistic right like yeah. you can you can ship the kind of not that awesome like initial iPod but it's still good enough that a bunch of people will buy it and gradually move towards the iPhone, right? Like you you don't have to feel like you got to ship the iPhone or you're like a loser. (laughs) Yeah, I learned a a word today, uh, aristeia, which is this Greek word that's sort of the the moment of triumph for for the hero. It's like, you know, the the moment that their sort of career has led up to and and this like glorious uh, occurrence on the battlefield or, or something like that. And, you know, Jobs on stage introducing the iPhone, that's like an Aristea kind of moment. Totally. But a lot of the products that they released were absolutely not successful. Like, right. you know, he, he got fired at one point as CEO of right. the company. And like totally. had to go and do some other stuff for a while before he came back in the darkest right. days of the company. Yeah. And I, I'm sure if you had, you know, taken a snapshot at any of those moments and been like, is this guy your CEO role model? A lot of people would have been like, not really. <laughs> like, I, I think, uh, you know, I'd rather be employed, uh, for example. Yeah. But, you know, and I think that's the, the risk of, of looking at those moments in such a long career is that you see the successes and you think that that is what their career looked like. Yeah. But that's not what it mostly looked like. You know, exactly. It's, exactly. It's a, exactly. It's the rare occurrence that kind of defines the, the career, not all of the dark days in between. Exactly, exactly. Luckily, though, people mostly remember those really good ones. So then it makes it good as we do crank out all these like smaller fails along the way. People, Yeah, will which is freeing, right? Like, you yeah. know, if you went and did the research, you could find, you know, for any successful person, you could list out yeah. dozens of times that they totally. failed or made bad decisions. And totally. so you should also feel like, you know, as an individual, you can make those mistakes because no one's really going to care about those it's just nope. that you've got to get some of those successes. That's what you'll be remembered by. In the meantime, remember. learn as yeah. much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. So what about on the people side? Uh, one of been some of the biggest like uh, lessons learned or issues like have you had false starts trying to start any functions where you maybe hired the wrong t- uh, sort of archetype of a leader for it or something and had to have a couple switcheroos or what's been the sort of biggest challenges on the people side so far? 
Um, I, I mean, I think hiring is a challenge for any company that's trying to build uh, a diverse team that also has a high bar for excellence. And I think being an early stage startup in this economy where many of the people we want to hire are currently working cushy jobs at top AI companies right. all conspire to make it even more challenging. Right. So I think just in general, figuring out how do you identify the type of person who is likely to leave one of those cushy jobs and come work at a, an early stage startup, or how do you filter for culture in appropriate ways? Um, we've mostly done pretty well there. Um, and so, you know, certainly nobody in any leadership roles has had to leave yet. Um, and I feel really good about the team that we have today. So whether that's by luck or by good hiring process, I don't know. Um, but just figuring out how to get top talent in the door, um, mm. given that we can't throw money at them in the way that their current employers can, yeah. um, that's hard. I mean, we had one candidate who was like, well, I'm making you know, $1.2 million a year currently. So mm -hmm. you know, if I'm gonna leave that job and come join Graft, <laughs> you gotta convince me I'll make $8 million over the next five years. And I was like, well, if you're willing to, you know, believe my, you know, valuation projections and like right. the vision for the company, then sure, I can make that argument to of you. Course. Right. But yeah. like, then it's easy. Yeah. But if you're going to apply some probability multiplier, like, well, this percentage of startups, you know, never make it beyond whatever stage, then it's like, there's no right. way you're going to, the math is going to work out. No. So finding those believers, finding people who understand that they're going to be rolling up their sleeves and doing, you know, some jobs that maybe they didn't have to do with their previous job where they're rolling the dice to some extent on the, the company and the product and the vision and the team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Finding those people based on like LinkedIn profiles or, or, or like even interviews right. can be hard. It's really so, hard. Yeah. Do you have any, any specific thoughts like in terms of, what's been successful for you in sourcing them or maybe screening for a fit for the early stage? Cause I know this is a thing that a lot of early stage founders always struggle with. I, I have an unsatisfying answer for, for two reasons. Uh, so the unsatisfying answer is uh, leaning into our, our networks and sort of mutual connections. Yep. So having a little bit of social proof via people that we know, or at least yep. have interacted with them enough. And that's unsatisfying for, for two reasons. One, not everyone has the kind of network that, that we have. Right. I think we're very fortunate in that respect. Yeah. And, and second, it doesn't scale. Like no. I, I have a lot of LinkedIn connections, but not that many. And yeah. so at some point we're going to exhaust that pool and now we're going to have to figure out, well, how do we extend that kind of, you know, social validation or, uh, or, or what, what have you to people who we have no connection with whatsoever, but we still need to somehow convince ourselves that they're going to be a, a good fit. Right. Um, but we, we are starting to get better about picking up on, on subtle cues during interviewing, um, just little things about, you know, how, what kinds of questions they ask or don't ask, um, the way they treat different interviewers. So, um, yep. you know, two, of my, two of my co-founders are women, and sometimes the feedback between the men on the interview panel and the women on the interview panel are pretty distinctly different, and things yes. like that are, are red flags. Um, and so we've gotten better at just seeing those early and saying, yep, nope, it was a bad experience. We're not going to bother going forward with this. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, okay, so last question is a prediction question. Um, cause I just thought given your business, it would be really cool to get your opinion on this. So, um, it's been very interesting watching how ML and AI have evolved in the past five years or so. 
and this focus on you know basically very large pre-trained increasingly general models and as you said we especially see those in the places like google facebook OpenAI, um etc obviously the deep mind guys which is also just google basically um so the thing is you know these guys are sitting on these massive data sets and pre-trained models and they're all trying to mostly all trying to run sort of a cloud SaaS business. Facebook hasn't really spun something significant up yet, but maybe they will after they finish the ARVR wild goose chase here. We'll see how that goes. Um, but it would certainly be a practical thing for them to consider. And so, you know, so imagine you're in this world where, you know, you have these big, let's, let's say there's a big five players or something from these giant tech companies. So, what does the future look like of ML infrastructure? What do they take on? What do startups take on? Why is there space for people like you guys and a bunch of other folks that are emerging versus like these guys just doing all of it? Like, how do you see it all shaking out? So I, I try to describe this by metaphor to cars. Mm -hmm. So imagine a world with no car companies. That, that's kind of how AI infrastructure is today. So you can go to Amazon and they'll sell you pieces of a car. So, you know, you can get like windshield wipers and tires or just more concretely, you know, you can get a, a relational database or a model server or all the sort of pieces that you need. But if you actually want a fully functional piece of AI infrastructure, if you just want a car, you need to hire some really talented people to assemble all of those different components into a cohesive, coherent AI production system. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the current state of the world to a large extent. Mm -hmm. So all of the cloud providers, they build pieces. That's what they're selling access to is those pieces. And you still have to go build a production system on top of it. Yep. Um, or you can look at point solutions, which are like cars that can only go one place, like cars on rails or something. So. You, know, you can go to the grocery store, but if you also want to pick up the kids at soccer practice, you need to buy another car. Yeah. And those are, those are like point solutions. Um, but there aren't really any ML infrastructure car companies uh, prior to Graft. And that's kind of where we view our key distinction hmm. is that you don't need to have ML engineers or data scientists in order to use it. And you'll get a fully functional production AI system that lets you do AI the same way that the top AI companies do it. Mm -hmm. And I think we are the first example of that kind of company, but I don't imagine that we'll be the last. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, think the yeah, just, yeah, go ahead, just sorry. quickly, just continuing that metaphor for a second, you know, one thing that I think will change is right now, if you talk with, you know, some larger companies, especially on the technical side, they'll say, oh, you know, we're going to build our own AI infrastructure because we need it to be very performant. I mean, we have like certain requirements that are just very specific to us. So we're gonna build our own. But if you look on the car side of things, if you look at like all of the best racing teams in the world, they're not building their own cars. They're the most high performance vehicles in the world, but they're still going to car companies to get the car, at right. least the, the vast bulk of it, because those car companies are experts at building the full car Right. Not necessarily at building tires or windshield. Right. They'll still get those from someone else. But when it yeah. comes to putting a car together and selling it, you want the best performance. You go to someone who just builds cars. Right. And the same will be true of AI infrastructure. 
in the not too distant future, these companies that are cobbling together their own AI infrastructure because they think they'll get something better that way are going to just be left behind by, for example, what we're doing at Graft, where you know, every every month that goes by, that's another month that some other company would have to devote to building something that's even close to what Graft is going to be capable of. Gotcha. So if we extend the analogy, your basically your prediction for the the big tech companies is that they they're effectively the same as some some massive scale like auto parts manufacturer in China or something, basically. Yeah. And then you you gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and I I think what we'll find is that, yes, buying a production system makes a lot more sense than buying all the parts and seeing if you can figure out how to get them to work together. And so, you know, in that future world, I think there will be lots of people building cars. And these guys are are happy because you're running all the stuff on their clouds anyway. So they're they're minting money there. So they don't they don't need to move up the stack and do this other piece in order to profit from this movement. That's right. And, you know, everything is going to move to, to multi-cloud in yep. various forms. And so then for those AI, sorry, for those uh, cloud infrastructure companies, then it'll be a kind of competitive race to the bottom as far as pricing goes. Because as mm-hmm. soon as there is flexibility to move around and say, well, I need a blob store, you know, which which vendor should I use? Well, I'm going to use the one that is most performant and cheapest because it doesn't really do matter that, which of the do, vendors. Do you think that maybe makes them want to move up the stack, though, a little bit to some higher margin stuff and compete with guys like you, perhaps? Or We'll see. At the moment, there's sort of no evidence that any of them are interested in doing this. Um, And in fact, this was something that, you know, our our co-founders who came from some of those companies made sure that they were sort of validating internally before they jumped ship. But even if they made that shift, we have, you know, years and years before that's gonna happen. And so we'll be be well on our way to having the best car in the world. (laughs) I mean, AI infrastructure, yeah. Awesome. All right, man, I think we're good. That was really fun. Thanks a lot, Bradford. It was great to be here. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much.